Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford-Bloor from TIFO Football, and Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst. Welcome to Survival Football, where one win or one show of character can be decisive. West Ham and Brighton have given themselves a fighting chance of avoiding the drop, but teams like Norwich and Bournemouth look broken beyond repair. Watford and Aston Villa are still deep in the mire and are probably competing to escape the final relegation place. It's a neutral's delight. Nervy, messy, traumatic and, let's be honest, morbidly entertaining. That a fair summary, Aid? <laughs> oh, yeah, morbidly entertaining. I guess so. Look, it's, it might be done and dusted earlier than we, we hope, actually, as, as neutrals. You want it to go to the last day, but Norwich are so bad at the moment, leaking so many goals that you think they might be dead and buried relatively soon. Bournemouth are in truly awful form. They, they look just bereft of ideas. And and sometimes that that can manifest itself in, in looking like you don't care. And and I think that was the case against Newcastle. I, think, I just think they've run out of ideas and, and and belief in each other. So I would I would agree that 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 they're doomed. And and it's on, isn't it? I think for Villa, Watford, West Ham, I, I wouldn't exactly write off write off Brighton just yet. They've got some tough games coming up. But yeah, it's <laughs> we we we're seeing not as much fight i don't think for from these guys as as anticipated obviously west ham buck the trend with that great win against against chelsea but in general these these teams that are struggling have come back very very slow hasn't the the restart seb actually sort of highlighted the point that there is a huge gap in terms of lack of depth and quality between the strugglers and the rest of the premier league and almost you know, it's reasserted the reality that the Premier League is pretty much split into three sections. You've got the elite, you've got the water treaders, and then you've got the strugglers. Is that a fair assessment of where the teams that we've already talked about are in, the, in amongst those strugglers? I think so, Mike. I'm almost tempted to add a, another category there because beneath the, the strugglers are the no-hopers because I would, I would actually I would draw a division between sides like Brighton who you know, are still liable to get outclassed by the occasional Man United, but are able to knock over decent sides. Teams like Bournemouth at the moment, who I said before we started recording, they just look broken. And I think what you see is is because teams, because some teams in the division have that lack of depth, when things start to go wrong, where there are problems with mechanics, it's not as simple as swapping one £20 million centre-half for another and hoping that his self-confidence kind of imbues a some kind of improvement in, in the side around him. It's just game to game. It just seems to get worse. Actually, I, I say watching Bournemouth last night was pretty difficult. I like a lot of the people at the club. You know, a lot, a lot of the people that sort of work around the match day environment for the media are, are lovely. They, you know, they couldn't be more helpful. And this is kind of, if this is how it ends, 
if after all that they've achieved and all the work that's gone into staying at this level, if this is how it ends, what a waste. It's just it's just hopeless to watch. I, I think the league is divided into two, really. You've got you've got the much more than two, clearly, with Liverpool and Man City's supremacy, etc. But you've got about eight teams that you know won't go down. But of the of the remaining twelve, I think they've always got a chance to be in that strugglers category. Yet some will overachieve, some will recruit brilliantly, some will stick to their identity even when results aren't going well and then come through it. And others get themselves in, into a pickle. I mean, you just got to look at, at your Burnley, Sheffield United, Newcastle Palace. These could all have been strugglers. I wouldn't say that they have any greater depth than the teams at the foot of the table necessarily. I just think they've got they've got better leadership at the moment and, and a clearer identity and, and maybe a little bit more talent in key areas of the pitch. But for me... 12 could always be strugglers in, in the Premier League. It's it just this season, it happens to be these five. Mm, I think there's a really a good thing there to highlight the achievements of, of, of say, Sean Dyche and Burnley in particular. That, you know, there is a club which has a and a team that has an identity. And I think, you know, they, they benefit from almost playing up to that identity. Let's, let's look, if we could, Seb, at the strugglers in the degrees of, to which they're in trouble. Norwich gone. The form, yeah. The formalities, <laughs> the formalities presumably will be completed if they can't beat Brighton on Saturday. They they've just lost any momentum they had before the lockdown, and there were several players there who looked to be going against going through the motions against Arsenal. Apparently so, which is sad to hear because one of the themes of Norwich's season has been this idea that it was just a kind of day out, wasn't it? Everyone was happy to go along with it and um, whatever may be will be. And if they were to find themselves back in the championship in 12 months' time, that would be absolutely okay. I, the reality is a little bit different. Question marks against uh, Emi Buendia, who seems to, by all accounts, maybe have had his head turned by what, what's next for him. Timo Pukki as well, possibly. I mean, I, I, I know not everybody will agree with this. I think Nor- Norwich could have made a better fist with it from a recruiting standpoint. I feel like they've got an awful lot of talent in that team, not just Buendia and Pukki, Cantwell as well. The two fullbacks are great. They just needed to box a little bit more clever through the middle of the pitch for me. 100%. Yeah? 100%. It's, yeah. It's, it's, they, they didn't sign any Premier League now, did they, Seb? And, and that, is, that is vital, in my opinion. You, you need players that, that, are, that are strong, that have been there in the, in the top flight before. Or at least, if you if you can't recruit players with Premier League experience, recruit players in your in your weakest areas, which which was clearly centre half and central midfield, and 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 they are so flimsy yeah. down the middle of the pitch. Actually, if I was Pookie or Brendia or Todd Cantwell, I'd actually feel let down by the club to some degree because there's no defensive platform for those for those forward players to thrive now. Early on in the season, everyone was excited. They they shone. They, they you know they took the fight to everybody, and we we caught glimpses of how good they can be. But, but over the course of the season, results have gone so badly because of this flimsy rearguard that that those forward players have just seen their morale drop and drop and drop, and also the service into them drop and drop and drop. So yeah, I just feel that 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 they deserved a better group of players down the spine you know of the what, pitch. That's just that's my opinion. You know what's so interesting? When, when back in the day, like, let's go back 20 years, 
to you know sort of mid nineties when they when they, when the game was still a little bit agricultural. When teams used to come up, they used to come up with players that could play. They also used to have a few players that could kick a few people and that were not to be trifled with. So like previously, a Norwich would come up with a couple of Neil Redferns and like a, a player like that who who can play but also can look after themselves. And I feel like I know that that type of footballer has been marginalised by the by, by the game as it's evolved. And I know it's not quite how it was. And I sound a bit old saying this kind of thing. I sound a little bit like <laughs> my dad. Um, but I feel like Norwich could have could have benefited from a little bit more weight. So that when someone like, you know, it's like an ice hockey principle, isn't it? When someone like Campbell's on the ball and he's getting kicked, I've got someone alongside me with a bit of weight and a bit of menace. Mm. And I, I just feel mm. like they could have... The little bit of a more old-fashioned perspective on their recruiting that could have really benefited them this season. They conceded fifty-seven goals in the championship. Now, luckily, they scored ninety-three because they had such quality in forward areas with those players that we we mentioned. It it doesn't take you know you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realise that if we don't improve our defensive areas, then that fifty-seven goals against Column is going to be significantly worse in the top flight and there's no way we're going to score 93. So yeah, it's just, I, I just think they missed a trick. It was, it was a little bit naive in, in my view anyway. But, you know, should we criticise a club for coming up with, you know, we, we talked about identity a couple of minutes ago. You know, they have a strategy. I think probably there was an acceptance within the club that promotion probably came a, ahead of schedule. And, you know, why, you know, put everything on red or black and, and end up skint at the end of the night in the casino. The, the, <laughs> at least they put, some, put something on red, though. Yeah. Just, just something. Well, yeah, I, 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 I think win, the, the key is some, some, some of the um, incoming players haven't been up to it, and they've yeah, been tend to be, and they've tended to come from Germany, where obviously you know that then highlights you know, the potential influence of Daniel Farker on the recruitment strategy. So maybe that's an area that they need to look at. You know, I think they they recruited very very well in the in the championship. Puki seems to have reverted to the player that he was at Celtic, and that's been a gradual process over the season. You know, he he started superbly well. I suppose you know we'll talk about uh, Aston Villa in some depth later, and 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 this point later. But surely what they've done is at least better than going up. And basically throwing as much mud at the wall and see see what stick in in terms of money and players. You know, at least when they do go down and they will, they will be in a pretty good state to actually come straight back up again. And I suppose in the long term of the health of the club, that's what it's all about. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, the Villa thing is really interesting because I think I think that's the cautionary tale. There is. If you've got a season in the championship, if your squad consists of loans and players who are going to be out of contract in the summer, then you've really got no choice. If you're to, prom- to be, if you're promoted, you have to spend that kind of money because you just don't have. It's not about squad depth; it's about filling out your positions. I mean, they they were over a barrel with with Bournemouth for Tyron Mings. I mean, had he not had they not retained him as part of that defence, goodness knows where they would have been. So, what choice did they have but to spend nearly thirty million quid on? Um, on signing him permanently. My point would be, if you look at Norwich's opponents on Saturday, yeah. Brighton, you know they had some they, they made some horrendous recruitment mistakes in the early days. But you can see now a plan evolving there. You know, obviously they're looking, <clears throat> excuse me, long term in terms of you know the the five year contract for Potter. You've got 
a structure built around Dan Ashworth as a sporting director, technical director, you know, whatever his title is. So again, there is a club with a clear plan and they will benefit because of that plan. I think this is also going to be a part of the examination for clubs now. Like when, when, the, when the transfer market opens, we're going to see without the option to, as you say, throw mud at the wall, you're going to see which clubs work. You're going to see whether that linearity exists at places like, for instance, Brighton. If there's a plan and if there's a strategy by which sporting director, owner, head coach, coaching staff as a whole, if they're all on the same page, their chances of finding creative solutions in the market going forward are greatly enhanced. It's going to be the clubs that have relied on going, right, well, I've got £25 million, let's spend it on this player and hope it goes well. That's the club that's going to be found out. And I, I, I do agree with you. I mean, like, if I was a Norwich fan, I wouldn't be disheartened. I just think that it was a, a situation where there needed to be a slight bit of adaption ahead of this season. Like, they got a few decisions wrong. I mean, their, their ideas last season were excellent. The development, the organic evolution of the players at the club is, you know, it's, you can't argue with that. But then you, you chuck in someone like a, a Dermich or, a, you know, the goalkeeper. I, I, don't, I don't like the goalkeeper. I mean, I, I look at sort of his, his Premier League record in the past and I look at kind of the players in front of him. Is he the right goalkeeper? So it's about refining Mike. It's not about saying, right, we, we, need, to, we need to abandon everything we've done to this point. We just need to be a little bit smarter next time round if, if that opportunity mm. exists. Brighton's recruitment, I think, has been pretty yeah. good. Just, just thinking about who they've brought in. They, they spent a lot of money, by the way. Adam Webster came in from, from Bristol City, 20 million. But I think by and large, he's, he's acquitted himself well. Neil Mope was the same. I think that, that without Neil Mopay, they probably would have gone down. So so that was a, a smart investment. And then they picked up a few few little bargains along the way. Aaron Moy, I think, was relatively cheap. Tariq Lamptey has come in and, and looks looks decent. Trossard as well. So I think that they've got, that they added the right players and, and they should just about survive. I actually think they've done great considering how radical the tactical changes have been at Brighton. It's, it's as if you've gone from playing... Poolis ball. It wasn't quite that that bad at Brighton, but but going from Poolis ball to Wenger ball in the in in the space of a couple of weeks, really, of the summer holidays last year. That that was the nature of of how much Potter changed the style of play, and and they've done okay. It's it, it can be better. We know that, but but yeah, I, I wouldn't be too fearful if I was a Seagull supporter right now. No, you know, if you, if you think about it realistically, they win at Cairo Road, which is you know the the BT Sport game on Saturday. They're pretty much home and hosed, uh, although they've got Liverpool and Manchester City following that. And you know, again, they they were swamped, weren't they, by Manchester United's pace and fluency earlier in the week? But I suppose that defeat needs to be taken into context with you know United surging, and you know that team. Built around now, Bruno Fernandez. You're seeing the the maturity of of of, of Greenwood, the the revival of Matic. Who's next for them? Bournemouth. You know, but you know, Bournemouth one point out of twenty one. They've got the next four games in eleven days. Are four of the top seven: Manchester United, Spurs, Leicester, Man City. That's Sayonara, isn't it? You'd have thought so. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, I. <laughs> No matter the seasons that Bournemouth have spent in the division, they've always had this problem, this sort of this question mark against the the area in front of their defence and the areas behind their defence. Man United would really scare me if I was Eddie Howe because all of a sudden everything they're doing is going forward. There's so much movement amongst those front six players. 
like players like Greenwood not just come in and 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 they're not they're not just coming in and showing their potential. They're actually changing games. I thought his goal against the the, the first goal he scored on against Brighton was absolutely outstanding. The way he, he shakes his hips and does the defender. Bournemouth. I mean, I I don't see where the confidence comes from, Mike, because if you're a member of that back four, you need a solid performance to start. You know to to develop a little bit more belief than Everton exists at the moment. Now, where's that going to come from? Not from taking a shoeing against Manchester United. It's certainly not from having to face Fernandes and Pogba, which all of a sudden looks like an absolutely lethal combination in the middle of midfield. I just, I don't, I don't see where the turning point. I desperately want them to survive. I, I like Eddie Howe. I like uh, you know, the people I know at Bournemouth. We've mentioned that, but I, I can't make a case for it at the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm. There was almost a, an air of resignation about them, I, I felt, and which obviously testifies to to rock bottom confidence. Elementary errors at the back. Uh, interesting, Aid. Your perspective on this? There were reports that there was a a dressing room lock in after that game against Newcastle. Players only. I've been in one of those, and they 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 do tend to get pretty lively. And I'm sure you've been in your fair share as well, uh, Aid. Mm. Does that represent? basically players calling each other out does that represent the last throw of the dice possibly yeah it's actually i would regard that as as a, as a positive that they did that and and actually a positive in a way that that the staff weren't involved i think sometimes things need to be said when when the management aren't around and that's when players can really really be honest and open with each other and and look sometimes you when things aren't going well, you protect yourself. That's the natural mechanism as a, as a footballer. It's like you, you put your own defences up and say, "Well, it's not me; it's him." And and it's not; it shouldn't be like that. But sometimes, especially if the management are around, but but in that sort of environment, I think yeah, you you'd probably get some some home truths being said, and hopefully players taking it the right way. I'd be interested to know if Eddie Howe suggested that or whether that's something that the players decided to do on their own, because I think it's a big difference. <laughs> if, they did, if they decided to do it without how say so, then then that that might be undermining, you know, his his position and his tenure, maybe the respect they've got for him at the moment. So, so look, but yeah, it's, it's, it's probably a positive that they did it. And look, they just need to show a bit of fire. They've always been questionable at the back, in my opinion. They've always had a, a weak underbelly always been liable to concede a lot of chances. But the difference between this season and others is that they've always had a huge threat at the other end of the pitch that has, that has prevented rival teams from from being too gung-ho against them. And also it's, it's given them that outlet. Right now, there's zero confidence at the top end of the pitch. And when that isn't working and you have, you know, a, a porous defence, you're in, you're in massive trouble. For me... It's it's the forward players that have that have sort of dipped this year more than more than those at the back and uh, and that's been crucial. Hey, can I ask? Have you ever been in a situation where you have one of those players only meetings? Have I been in one? <clears throat> yeah, I mean because it just seems like when I hear about that, I think about Brian mm. Clough at Leeds. I mean, it's just mm. it just seems like a like a a place of no return for a football club, isn't it? No, I don't think it's a no. place of no return. No, I think no, I don't. No, I have I have been in them. I've also been in in forums where the manager has led it, and I've hated those. Okay. To be perfectly honest, because what happens when a manager sits there and sort of steers the conversation? What do you think? What about you? What do you think? And it's I don't like players digging teammates out too much. 
in front of the the, the decision makers, so to speak. Because I think those kind of scenarios lend themselves towards the big, strong characters who can dominate the conversation and turn it their way. And I think the quieter players that just want to get on with their job can sometimes suffer and be almost picked on in that environment. I think if you've got the players only, then... that's what it's all about. You are a team. When you're on the pitch, it's players only. I think I think it's fine. It's just I wouldn't want the ears of the manager sometimes in those conversations. I just think it's it's a more honest chat when you're on your own sometimes. Yeah, well, yeah, I I remember one incident where you know, a very forceful defender basically called out a winger and said, "If you do that again, I'm going to chin you." And it was it was not it wasn't an empty threat. You could see that in his no, eyes. No. Uh, and, and players will will own up as well. If 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 you don't have the gaffer there and the coaching staff there, players will own up to things that they wouldn't want to own up to necessarily in in front of certain certain people. So look, yeah, it, yeah. Uh, but a little bit of uh, of that, Mike. A little bit of you know, do that again, and I'll chin you. It can be healthy. It's you know, it's, in a football environment, you've got to be tough. You've got to be strong mentally, physically, and and it is, yeah, it, it's a brutal game. And sometimes that rocket and that and that fear can can drive you. That's sometimes all it can take. We do talk, don't we? You know, quite blithely sometimes about you know the pressure that managers are under. You know, I tried to watch Eddie Howe, you know, quite closely when the cameras were on him, and. You know, he's already before that game against Newcastle. He already saying that the that the situation was consuming him, and we've spoken in the past here about that sort of thousand yard stare that some managers have on the touchline. There was a moment there, I think, when they'd gone two 0 down, where he just had a bleakness in his eyes, and there was a very sh- sort of slow shake of his head. And that, to me, was a you know a man. Let, let's forget he's a football manager for a living. That was a man suffering, and part of me looked at that and thought, "Do you need to get out of this club eventually, no matter what happens, and almost reinvigorate yourself? Maybe go away for six months, go and you know do some coaching seminar work, or go out to uh, go out you know to La Liga or wherever to actually just renew your trade and then come back fresh at another club because." The one thing about Eddie Howe you can't deny is a huge coaching talent. And at the moment, he's just almost shriveling before our eyes. It looks to me as if he's almost sick of working with this group of players, as if there's only so much he can tell them. There's only so many coaching sessions he can put on before it sinks in. And and yeah, maybe maybe in his mind, he, he needs a, a fresh challenge. I, I can see, actually, actually, even if they miraculously stay up, Maybe it's time for him to walk away in the in the close season. If if I was Bournemouth right now, I'd I'd certainly be considering who could we get in place to succeed Eddie Howe because I know they'll be reluctant to to fire him, but but I wouldn't put it past Eddie to to walk away uh, and just say, look, I I think I've genuinely taken this team as as far as I can. Again, you, you look at the recruitment as well. Th- things like that have gone against him. Gruneveld from Bruges. You know, nearly fourteen million. I mean, he's, he's done nothing, has he? This season, other players that you've spent big money on not delivered. Well, look at look Solanke. at Solanke. Yeah, Solanke. Yeah, I mean, games without a goal now. Yeah, I mean, seventeen million pounds as well. He was unlucky. Mepham and Lloyd Kelly, two promising young players, cost twenty five million between them. But you know, injured for the for the for the most part this this term. 
Jefferson Lerma, I mean, you have to say £25 million is, is a lot for, for what he brings to the table. He's okay at what he does, but £25 million could probably have been spent better elsewhere. So, look, it's a mixture of things, isn't it? But but for me, Eddie, Eddie needs a new challenge. Guys, one, one of the things I, I started thinking about when, when I was watching that game was, so put yourself in Eddie Howe's position where, you know, you respond to form by putting on different sessions. You may be... You know, you maybe get everyone in the club and maybe everyone in the first team, you know, in a meeting room and you, you know, you air your views and you go through set piece drills and you, you articulate your game plan. And then when game time comes, that's the first goal you concede. I mean, can you imagine on a human level, like how despondent you'd be? I mean, one of the, one of the first lessons I learned when I moved into the press box was that exactly what Mike has just said, these are people. And these are people with very human responses and they're not TV holograms. And as a result of things that go wrong, there is a human cost inevitably. And you just think if you're Eddie Howe and you've seen what you saw against Newcastle, how do you pick yourself up to go through the cycle of duties and activities and routines that you need to prepare for the next game? I think that's a really underappreciated part of management because you almost have to be, I mean, you almost have to be unfeeling because your instinct your instinct, if you Eddie Howe, is this is hopeless. What am I doing? I'm wasting my time. These defenders, no matter what I tell them, no matter whether me and my assistants drag them into the right positions to defend, it's not going to matter because someone's going to make a mistake. It's got to be, it's got, I don't think I could overcome that if I was in his position. It's got to be very, very difficult. And you've got to believe yeah. as well, Seb. Yeah. You, you yourself have to believe. And if, if players sense that the manager doesn't believe in you anymore then you've yeah, gone sure. you really I'm have sure. gone you've got to you've got to fake it till you make it that's that's the old adage isn't it and uh, i think in football management that that definitely rings true because it's the relentlessness of it isn't it that, that that really gets to people in the end and you know let's look at aston villa and dean smith you know the the likelihood is that he'll pay for relegation with his job you've got the shadow of john terry I'm still not convinced by his credentials, by the way, to be a successor. You've got, again, a sporting director, Suso, who, let's let's be honest, probably oversaw £135, £140 million worth of pretty futile spending in, 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 in the summer. With Villa, you've got no respite. You've got Anfield on Sunday. You've only got two points out of the last 24 You've conceded 60 goals in the in the Premier League, which is the same as Norwich. Blimey, you know, that is some job, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's, it's not gone at all to plan. I, I feel for Dean Smith. I, I do believe he's a he's a good manager. He, he was a philosophy coach, really, at Brentford. I think that what, what we're seeing at Brentford now, he laid the platform for that, we shouldn't forget. But you, you're only as good as the players you get to get to work with, aren't you? I don't know how much say he's had on, on recruitment. The, the, what's cost them, in my view, is is spending, what's it, 32 million total on, on Wesley and Samata. I mean, two guys that, that don't look like they're going to score anywhere near enough goals. I think that, that's a big problem. They dipped into the loan market, Danny Drinkwater, Disaster, Pepe Reina, now sub. I think it shouldn't be forgotten, that that Tom Heaton, his injury, yeah. I, I believe that that was that was huge for them because Tom Heaton, in my view, he's up there with Nick Pope. There's there's not much to choose between those two at, at Burnley, one of one of the better keepers I think in in the division, and and his absence has, has been costly because Nyland is just not good enough. I'm sorry, he's he he's poor. 
So basically, at both ends of the pitch, your keeper and your centre forward, they're weak at the moment. And and I think that that Dean Smith can't necessarily be pinned on that. I don't think he's to blame for that. Mm, you've almost got it's a bit of a Fulham situation, isn't it, going on there, Seb? Yeah, although I felt that sort of that that splurge of transfer activity at Fulham was just completely unnecessary. Whereas at Villa, I know we mentioned earlier, there were holes in that squad. They lost players that either they didn't earn permanently, they didn't own permanently at full time, or they didn't believe would be good enough to go back into the um, into the Premier League. So someone like Glenn Whelan, for instance. So I got a little bit of sympathy, but I agree with Adrian. I mean, I, the recruitment hasn't really been good enough. Also, you mentioned John Terry there, Mike. <laughs> I'd have some question marks about John Terry's influence at Villa, given what their weakness has been this season. They can't they can't stop conceding goals. So on what basis is is John Terry eligible for 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 either a promotion at Villa or a management job elsewhere? I don't. I mean, that was that not, was my point actually. To be honest, I, I don't. I mean, if I'm a player, I don't want to play for John Terry. Like respectfully, like I, I mean, because what's he done? I mean, outside of his playing career, what has he done? I mean, I it's a real bugbear of mine. This kind of. Um, players sort of defaulting under, under into positions without really earning the right to be there. Yeah, but he was part of the promotion team, wasn't he? He was part of the promotion squad as, as a number two. Yeah, I, I know, mate, but he, he's, he's, got to, he's got to this position. And the one thing that you'd associate with John Terry at the moment is if I if he's in my club, I think that I would assume that his, his primary merit is what can he do for my centre-halves and or defence and or the relationship between my centre-halves and my goalkeeper. And it's been an absolute catastrophe. And I'm sure that isn't the extent of John Terry's remit. But at the same time, he's got to bear some responsibility for that. And it's not kind of, right, well, I'm going to find the guy that's most closely associated with my most failing department and I'm going to make him the manager of my football team. That doesn't add up. I mean, it's... um, <laughs> And I, I also, yeah, I, I just... I, I have a hard time with some of the kind of the, the mental gymnastics by which some of these ex-players find themselves in 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 head coaching roles and if if that's but in that sense yeah. though Lampard could Lampard could have taken that job right as number two at Villa for example and sat there behind Dean Smith and had had his say but ultimately Dean Smith's the manager and you could be saying the same thing about him I could right? do but if I can trace uh, yeah, Lampard's yeah, yeah, influence in a more positive way so I'm, I mean I watched a bit mm-hmm. of Derby last season I watched them in the playoff final and very clearly they were kind of there were naivetes to the way they played their football. I thought I thought their performance in the playoff final was actually pretty poor, to be fair. I felt that it exposed a few of Lampard's naivetes. But you can make a case in the way that you can't for John Terry. I mean, if, if Lampard, Lampard is growing as a head coach, we know this, he's got things to learn. But if you look at Chelsea's season, you can see his influence on, for instance, Mason Mount. You can applaud his handling of Christian Pulisic. You can say he's done quite a good job with a defence, which increasingly we're realising isn't really up to it. And a goalkeeper who, ditto, I'm afraid, he's he's not, you're not going to achieve anything with that goalkeeper. John Terry, like the minimum requirement is I want a bit of stability in that department. And it's 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 worse than it was at the beginning of the season. So it's kind of um, I don't know how. I'm not saying that John Terry is doomed never to be a head coach. I just on what basis at the moment, right now, this minute, are you saying? Is anyone saying? Not you. We're <laughs> becoming accusatory, isn't it? Like, <laughs> I never thought I'd be sat here arguing. John arguing. Terry. Yes. <laughs> Shut up, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> all else, all, last word on this, right? Because I'm 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 never a fan of John Terry's personality necessarily. Right. Although although you know people that know him better than I do, you know you know quite like him. Dean Smith was a defender as well. So he knows a thing or two about defending. Okay, not in the Premier League, but but for me, Dean Smith is a very hands-on manager. 
that coaches and managers, I just don't know how much John Terry is is doing. And, and for that reason, I wouldn't, I, yeah, I just think it's a bit harsh to, to not write off his managerial credentials, but to, but to suggest that that he's at fault here. That's 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 all. I mean, I'm, all I, I'm I don't saying. Know, well, I'm, I don't think in, in his defence, in his de- in his defence, you know, you do talk to people either around the club or certainly around the game, and he does have a reputation for being good with young players in terms of you know passing on the you know the experience which, which is unchallenged. But I suppose you know t- to take up your point about uh, Frank Lampard, Seb Watford are at Chelsea on Saturday evening. That wake up call at the Brady Dome, probably was ill-timed for uh, Watford, wasn't it? Yeah, I'd say so. It was interesting, wasn't it? Because it was almost a Chelsea performance, not of two halves in the sort of 45-minute sense, but in, in the departmental sense. That exposed some real problems in, in the defence. I think Marcus Alonso will pay for what happened last night with his place. Christensen is uh, is probably on the way back. Weak. I Yeah, I didn't want to use that word, but I completely agree. I Weakness is... is uh, Rudiger aside, that's the one word that I'd use to describe every member of that, every member of that defence, soft. Now, I, I don't know, there are certain things that Lampard won't be able to address before Watford. The goalkeeper, I mean, you could replace him with Caballero. I'm not sure Caballero is that good a player. I'm not sure what you do with Azpilicueta. I don't know whether you can construct a centre-back partnership around Rudiger in three days. Watford, I've got concerns about because coming back off the lockdown, we were talking about New Dawns and Nigel Pearson's made a real difference. And at the time, I felt that was true. Now, less so. They're kind of sliding towards that Bournemouth category with me because I, they're not doing anything well, Mike. And they're not doing anything well enough to trouble Chelsea. I like, for instance, Sarah as a player. I like Dini as a player. I like Will Hughes, Decore, Capu. I like these players. But as a unit, there isn't anything to them. Their sort of Their recent performances have been almost of a side that have got nothing to play for. And also a side without very, very many ideas. So the one thing that we associated with Pearson and Craig Shakespeare is you think good coaches, you know, good ideas. You know, this is this is a team that from this point onwards is going to be slightly better drilled. They don't, they don't look like I've got any ideas whatsoever about how to score goals, which is really concerning. And so you're not going to be able to exploit a weakness like Chelsea's defence. If, yeah, if they approach the game with a, aggression and... Really getting it like West Ham did to a certain degree, you know, no, no fear, and get balls into that box. Test Kepper, test, test Alonso or Emerson because Emerson's not exactly any more more sturdy than Alonso. Ask, I, I still think Rudiger is not playing as well as as he has in the past. I, I actually think Watford have got the powerful players to unsettle Chelsea. It's just at the other end of the pitch. You look at Chelsea's, you know, for, forward talent. And you think, well, they'll rip. They'll rip Watford apart. I think this could be a really good game, actually. But 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 knowing Pearson a little bit, I just think he will he will surely look at what West Ham did, and he will surely fire his players up because that's something he's he's very good at, Nigel Pearson, to really really get at that underbelly of Chelsea. It, I think this this game depends on on Watford's attitude. If if they go into it aggressive. They can they can hurt them. I genuinely think that. Yeah, a bit like Seb though. I, I was really worried by the sort of the, the nature of their performance against mm. Southampton. Oh, it wasn't good. No, because wasn't because good. you know strugglers, you know almost almost by their nature are prone to submissive performances at the worst possible times. You know, Bournemouth have had a couple against Palace and obviously against Newcastle, and Watford have had the added distraction of this you know 
party or supposed party that Andre Gray hosted, and you've got three players there now, you know, essentially isolated from the group. You can't afford that at this stage of the season, can you? No. Look, you can't afford to have too many COVID idiots in a relegation <laughs> battle, can you? No. It's, uh, look, but, but on that game, as, as poor as they were, one was a gift. Ben Foster throws it straight straight to Ings. And the other one was a brilliant free kick from Ward Prowse. Take those two moments out of it and they've drawn one all and played badly. So I, you know what I mean? I don't know if it was as, as disastrous as the results suggest, but but the whole party thing was poor. But Pierce has done the right thing. He's, he's been strong on it, hasn't he? And and you have to be, even though that that might be to the short term detriment of the team. Long term, you've got you you you've got to make an example of these people. Yeah. What about West Ham, Seb? You know, I'll put my hands up. I was very surprised by that performance uh, against Chelsea. That then presupposes now they can go to Newcastle with some confidence at the weekend. Just like you to to dwell on one particular player, Mikel Antonio, a really interesting character when he's not driving his Lamborghini into your front garden. Um, and, and I loved his I loved his sort of reflections on homeschooling. He's got three kids, and and he called it a circle of toilet drink and I don't understand, which actually probably a lot of dads <laughs> listening to this can probably relate to. Um, he's a character. He's also the, one of the key factors in, in their attempt to stay in the league, isn't he? He's a really, really good player. I mean, and we've known this for a long time, but I, I'd liken uh, Michael Antonio to like, he's like his own department. I said this on Twitter last night, actually. The, the amount of stuff that he was asked to do against Chelsea is ridiculous. If you said to a, a player playing a, a lone forward position, this is what I expect of you. You're going to run the channels, you're going to hold up the ball, you're going to compete for possession around three defenders at times, and you're probably going to play 30 yards in front of your sporting midfielders. You'd say, what? <laughs> you know, you need you need, you need need someone in support. But he does this. He is a, he's a technically really good player, probably more so than appreciated, but he's a force as well. Like he is, he's so direct. And the list of defenders that he unsettles is amazing. And I thought his attitude last night was first class. It's one of the, the best, contextually, one of the best performances I've seen all season. And I, I, I wonder, I mean... In, in kind of idle moments, I catch myself with, with Antonio thinking, what would have happened with his career had he been surrounded by better teammates? If you put him, we won't say Spurs because that's too antagonistic, but if you say like you could you could play for an Everton, for instance, or you get a, a, a chance at Arsenal, what might he have been as a player? Because he's got, I mean, we talk about tools. He's got everything that you'd want in a player, including the attitude and personality. There was a really poignant sight, wasn't there, Aid, of Jack Wilshire coming on a substitute against Chelsea. I think we're probably doomed to watching him eke his career out and think, if only. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it, yeah, it saddens me what, what's happened to him because he was so exciting, such a, such a talented player when he burst onto the scene and... And yeah, it is purely injuries, purely injuries that have that have just uh, multiplied and multiplied, and it's just taken a, a slight edge off of his game. He was electric. He was England's best midfielder for for a short period when he was really on top of his game. And yeah, you feel now that 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 maybe he'll 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 drift down, you know, down the leagues potentially. I, I don't know what's going to happen with Jack. I think he might even be be one one major injury away from from having his career shortened. I hope not, but but yeah, he's 
he's a talent that that should really be operating at the top end of the division, but his body just just isn't set up for for the rigors of it. Unfortunately, he's just been incredibly unlucky. I I, I still think West Ham fans should hold hope that he can recapture some former glory and and, and inspire them, but. He can't run a hand on heart. That that that's that that's yeah. That is my that is my you know heart and not my head. He he's physically just lost that spark. He he was quick. He was yeah. sharp. One of the reasons he was so brilliant at his best was that he was he was he was brighter in his head and his feet than other players, and that's why he kept getting kicked. But the trouble is, he's been kicked so many times. He's suffered so many other injuries. That that yeah, his body isn't up to it. I think there's a career if he, if he went to a, like a, a slightly slower paced league, a slightly more forgiving league. I think there's probably a career there for him in the latter years as a kind of a, a deep line playmaker, someone who's not expected to carry the ball. I mean, watching him watching him chase the play at the moment is actually quite difficult to watch because he he can't run, he lollops, and I know he's always had a slightly strange gait, but that's why I thought it was such a an odd decision to bring him on last night because I. I know it felt like David Moyes was bringing on the reputation of Jack Wilshire rather than the reality of what he has, but it was it's difficult to watch. I, don't, I I can't see a future for him in the Premier League given you know the demands physically. Yeah, sad, very sad. Let's look if we could. You know, we we spoke briefly about Leeds earlier in the week. The teams coming up. Uh, West Brom had another good win last night. I just want to look at the Brentford model. I think they're four points off West Brom now. It is extraordinarily successful, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, the I mean the B team was a was a bold move. They got a lot of stick, didn't they, for for walking away from from the academy system. But it's it's working because you look at the Brentford first team right now, and and a lot of these guys have come through the B team where they've been picked up on the cheap, just you know training alongside the first team, and and then and then dropped in. But this B team are having competitive football, not under twenty three football, not academy football, having I mean proper friendly matches against against senior teams around Europe and it's it is working very well for them I, I love the fact that they've stuck to the same style of play that that they had under Dean Smith as well and and yeah just so many of these young prospects that maybe didn't make it in the Premier League initially have come in at Brentford and and they're just they're just kicking on De Silva in midfield is is great you know you've got Ben Rahm and Breno two excellent signings from from overseas, Ollie Watkins was has to go down as one of the smartest pieces of recruitment from from the lower reaches of the EFL in in recent years. Yeah, yeah, Brentford are doing a lot of things right, and they're a very exciting team. And if they do miss out on automatic, they would, but they are the best team in the playoffs, hundred percent the best team. It doesn't mean they'll get promoted, but they are at the back and going forward. The, the best team in the championship right now, actually. I, th- I think they're playing better than Leeds and, and West Brom. Is that model transferable to the Premier League, Seb? I don't know, Mike. <clears throat> the Premier League is such a forgiving environment financially. I think one of the problems is that there isn't quite enough incentive for clubs to be to be efficient. It's actually one of the things that makes the, the, the next couple of transfer windows quite interesting, is this kind of new financial reality. Whether a club is bold enough not just to splurge the broadcasting contract on what they want versus installing a, a process like a, as exists at Brentford. I don't think so. Because I, I think those kind of ideas, people are more, and I mean by people, I mean supporters, I mean communities, they're more receptive to those kind of things in environments where efficiency has more of a premium to it. 
And the championship is one of those places, one of the ways of standing out is to not be a, for instance, Reading. You're not spending 150% of your um, of your income on player wages, that kind of thing. I think certain things can be borrowed from it in terms of recruitment, in terms of eliminating some inefficiencies. But wholesale, I don't think so. I mean, it's too, it would be too dramatic. It would be too... It would challenge the culture probably a little bit too much. Mm. It's interesting. I, I think they'll. Do, I think they'll. If they do go up to the Prem, Mike, I think they could do better than West Brom, potentially as well, if not better than Leeds, because they've got a very good defence, as did Sheffield United, and they score goals. So, so you know, the, the next few weeks are really, really important to the future of that club. Yeah, and and you know, the division itself is sort of on the edge of an abyss as well, isn't it? If we look at you know, what's happened with Wigan going into administration, are we seeing the first cracks in the championship? And, you know, which has been basically, I think, you know, th- th- there's institutionalised inequality in, in football anyway, but it, it's it's most damaging probably in the championship where parachute payments, which, you know, Rick, Rick Parry, let's not forget, called them uh, an evil that must be eradicated. Those parachute payments are unsettling the whole uh, the whole division, aren't they? What are the lessons of, of the Wigan situation and are we going to see more clubs in that type of trouble? Well, yeah, we're going to see a lot of clubs in the Championship in trouble, possibly a lot of them going into administration. There are a few things that, that concern me about Wigan. Obviously, the Championship as a whole spends too much compared to what they bring in. The, you know, the, the amount that clubs spend on wages is frightening compared to income. That is one reason why a salary cap probably is necessary and, and certainly more stringent regulations. But my issue with Wigan here is that they've just had a takeover earlier this month. So what on earth is going on there? Is this another example of an, a new owner coming in and not having any money, passing the fit and proper person test and then turning out to be a wrong? And that's question number one. Question number two is, surely in a pandemic, we should review the situation in regards to punishments around administration because this is you know major extenuating circumstances i think it's incredibly harsh just to go bang 12 points especially you know especially in light of the fact that sheffield wednesday derby birmingham have been facing potential sanctions pretty much all season yet no punishment has been meted out yet on them for stuff that they're alleged to have done off the pitch in terms of circumventing uh, circumventing the FFP rules you know very quick to dish out this penalty yet yet those guys uh, are being kept on the hook and look Macclesfield consistent non-payers of wages yet they continue to be pandered to in terms of suspended penalty suspended penalty yet Wigan first first real issue as far as I'm concerned they've, they've paid their players as far as I'm aware new owners come in can't afford to pay the wages because of what's going on here. Suddenly they, they face 12 points. A lot of this doesn't sit very well with me. And by the way, Wigan, if if they had voted against playing or the championship had voted against playing, wouldn't be in this situation. They'd, they'd survive. So they're, in effect, they're being punished for playing on through a pandemic. That's why I feel that, 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 that this should be reviewed. There should have been discussions at board level within the EFL. What happens when clubs start going into administration, can we really dish out the usual 12-point penalty? Is that fair? I don't think that's happened. doesn't seem like it. Anyway, because, yeah, it's... Yeah, it, yeah. I'm, I feel for I feel for Paul Cook and the team because no one is playing better than Wigan right now in the Championship. 
Uh, and actually, even if they do get the 12-pointer, they might even survive beyond it. And I, I would desperately hope that they do. Yeah. Okay, well, let's sort of wrap things up now with a, a couple of quick thoughts for the day. Since we're in fine voice, Aid, uh, what would you want to get off your chest? <laughs> you can't shut me up, can you? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> is, that, is that what fine voice really means? No, no, mate. Yeah. You're, you're erudite and entertaining. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, it must be the glasses. Um, uh, the um, Matteo Guendouzi is my thought for the day. Just, It's a reminder that he's fit, he's, he's ready to play, but, but Mikel Arteta is, is leaving him out for other reasons, for disciplinary reasons, partly, I suspect, for what he did at, at Brighton. And I just feel that it's just a reminder of you have to, as a manager, think of think of the team as a whole. And if you've got one person that you can't trust, that you feel might let you and the others down with a moment of idiocy on the pitch and off it, then you have to be strong and you have to you take actions for the greater good. And I think that is what, what is happening right now with, with Matteo Guendouzi. And, and it's just, it's another sign of, of promise, I think, from in terms of Mikel Arteta's leadership. He's a talented young player. He's an asset to the club. He's worth a lot of money. But, but he is saying, look, mate, you, you have to raise your standards of behaviour if you want to be part of, of my Arsenal. And, and I just think that that is, is something that, that we probably ignore in terms of when we look at team selections, say, why has he been left out? Why is he not playing? You have to look beyond it sometimes. And and, and what, what we're seeing right now with Guendouzi is, is strong management that will help Arsenal in, in the long term. And and hopefully it's a wake-up call for, for the lad himself to, to to buck his ideas up and to, to mature as an individual. If he wants to play for, for that club, he, he needs to grow up. There, well, I told you, erudite and entertaining. Um, Seb? <laughs> yeah, well, firstly, I completely agree with Adrian. I think that's really strong management from Arteta. But my point was going to be, we spoke about Mikel Antonio earlier, about the way he plays the game and also his personality, the way he speaks to the media, the love he clearly has for the game. Now, my urging would be to West Ham to pay attention to that. One of the great flaws uh, in the club's strategy over recent years has been the superficiality of their recruiting strategy their preference for names and reputations over substance. Now, when the dust settles, and I think they probably will survive, it will be very, very smart for the people in charge of West Ham to pay attention to what it is that's allowed them to survive. And they, they, would, they, would, they would do well to look back on last night and think, do we win that game without Antonio at the top of our formation? And where did we get him from? We didn't offer him £200,000 a week. He didn't come in for £40 million. He is a player of substance, of personality. And that has to be the bedrock of any team scouting, of any team. Any team building exercise has to be built on the idea that a player is going to be willing to play for a team. A player is not going to check out halfway through the season. And I think this has been missing from West Ham far too long. And this is why season after season after season, they find themselves... Six months after, sort of declaring, well, we might we might finish in the Europa League. And, you know, Karen Brady's talking about finishing above Spurs in a column for the Sun. And then invariably they're in 15th or 16th. This is the way to arrest that, is to pay attention to what it is in this scenario that changes things for the better. And you just hope that that's the case, that that if they survive, it doesn't it doesn't provide another opportunity to you know, to have another go at the, the footballing quantum leap, so to speak, to kind of to throw mud at the wall, as you as you described it earlier, Mike. 
So learn the lesson. That's kind of my thought for the day, I think. Mm. Yeah, mm. well said. Good. Yeah. Well said, yeah. mate. Well, I want to finish by highlighting the hidden victims of football's lockdown. Now, to me, they're the young players in limbo because academy games won't resume until September the 12th at the earliest. They still don't know when they're going to be allowed to train. They still don't know whether their coaches will be around because academy staffs are being slashed in the cutbacks. Now, we all know the odds about making as a pro, and to get this far, they've had to survive the brutality of the system. Now, you've got careers being stalled and more uncertainty. Uh, Today, we've been talking about relegation uh, and about clubs on the brink, but let's spare these kids a thought because they are the game's future and we should look after them. So thanks for joining us today, and I hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Football Writers Podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code program for a four week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 